also think we need to go towards art that's going to give us that very complex picture of what it means to be human, as opposed to this kind of formulaic, flattened out picture mm -hmm. um, that, again, is, a, is an unhelpful and untrue narrative. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Mary McCampbell is an associate professor of humanities at Lee University in Tennessee. She's also the author of Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. In order to truly love and welcome others, she argues, we need to exercise our imaginations to see our neighbors more as God sees them than as confined by our own inadequate and ungracious labels. Dr. McCampbell and I sat down to talk about selfishness and injustice as a failure of the imagination, the idea that we are guests of an artist's hospitality with both the privileges and the responsibilities pretending thereunto, and other things. Mary McCampbell, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So you, uh, not too long ago, released a book called Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. Yes. So, yeah. Came out in April. In April. Okay. Who was my neighbor? Who was my neighbor? Well, to begin that conversation, I looked directly to uh, Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. Um, and what Jesus is teaching there is... Uh, how to be a good neighbor, but also who is our neighbor mm -hmm. um, Two two sides there. And if you, of course, you know, the story of the good Samaritan, um, but in this story, you have a man who is desperate and in need hurting might die on the side of the road mm -hmm. and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders um, walk by, not only do they walk by, they go to the other side of the street yeah. to avoid him. Um, and it's the Samaritan who comes, comes over and kneels down, gets on his level, feels what he feels. I mean, the, the text doesn't say that, but we know that that must have happened for mm -hmm. him to stop his life mm -hmm. and put himself at risk. And he really yeah. put himself at risk because if we look at the cultural context of, you know, who a Samaritan would have been in the eyes of the Jews, yeah. um, inferior, it's a different religion, um, seen as ethnically inferior, inferior in many different ways. Um, but he kneeled down to care for this person in need because he saw that, you know, my neighbor is a, a, someone next to me in need. But I, but I would say just, you know, in general, our neighbor is any human being, anybody else who's made in God's image. But in this story, we see to really be attentive to those who are in need and especially those who are different than us that we might mm -hmm. tend to push away. Um, and it's so interesting with that story, the context of I'm just I like to imagine how mad the the religious leaders that were questioning Jesus would have been when yeah. here is a story yeah. where, where they are not the stars. <laughs> they are not the good people. It's yeah. it's this outcast. Yeah. You know, and and he is the one who is the good neighbor. So how how can we be a good neighbor? Um, is to really see the image of God in another human being and see our common human needs. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that hits. I mean, there's a lot more I could say about that, but yeah. that's just just to begin with it. That's, that's it's so interesting the way Jesus 
purpose that like made them as made these stories as offensive as offensive as possible. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And and sort of makes you say, I don't like this. And either Jesus is wrong or I'm wrong here. Um, yes. Yes. And I just wanted to say too, I think seeing our neighbor comes oftentimes with a kind of sacrifice on our part and humility. Um, and I'm thinking MLK says in, in a sermon that he has about loving your enemies, and he talks about the good neighbor, I mean, sorry, the good Samaritan parable. And he says, you know, that the religious leaders that ignored this man in need said, what, you know, they're operating out of fear, mm-hmm. which is often yeah. the times what, what prevents us from really seeing our neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. And that they said, what's going to happen to me if I go over there? Right. Whereas MLK said, they're asking the wrong question. The question should be, what's going to happen to him if I don't? And so it's this posture of it, it truly is thinking of others better than ourselves. It's truly is. And this is a hard thing to do, even loving your neighbor in yeah. this sense, in this very sacrificial sense. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about the idea that selfishness, hate, you know, various forms of, of sin are a failure of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I, I want to dig into that idea. I mean, your sort of your your larger point is because art shapes our imagination. You know, it 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 helps us to be more empathetic. Um, although it, it occurs to me, isn't when I say what's going to happen to me is that an act? It, when I say what's going to happen to me, that's an act of imagination too, isn't it? That is. That is. Um... Yeah, I mean, so it's it's almost like you need a uh, well. Makoto Fujimura talks about a, a sanctified imagination. Mm-hmm. So it's not just enough to use the imagination, but it's like right. using the, the imagination in the direction of love. And I mean, a good example of that is, and I, I talk about it in depth in the book. There's a poem by um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge mm-hmm. that uh, this lime tree bower my prison. Where Coleridge is, it's about the use of the imagination in a way that can lead to hate or a way that can lead mm. to um, love. Um, but he, he in this poem, he has um, invited friends to, to come visit him in the Lake District. And these are friends in London, William and Mary Lamb. And they live in London. And the, he's so excited. He's planned the whole time together, going hiking, et cetera, et cetera. And then right before they come, he, he breaks his leg. <laughs> so he can't go. So he's, he, and when they arrive, he's actually kind of, he's mad and he's hurt because they decide to go on a hike without him. <laughs> okay. You know, and I, this is a great one to talk about in the classroom because I'm like, what would you do if your friends came out of town to visit you and yada, yada, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> and, but he is so dramatic and he's sitting there with his leg up and he's sitting in the, in the Lake district in a lime tree bower. And he calls it uh, this lime tree bower, my prison. <laughs> so dramatic. And he basically says, you know, these are friends. I may never see them again. And when I'm old and I've gone blind, I could have could have remembered my time with them. Like he's super dramatic and he's imagining all the things they're doing and it's making him mad. Yeah. Right. But then there's a shift that occurs and all of a sudden he starts to remember that his friend Charles loves nature and has been deprived of it because he lives in London. 
And so then he starts to think from the perspective of someone else. Uh-huh. And he says, um, it's, I, I feel as if I was there with them. And then it brings joy to him. And then he starts to realize that he's not in a prison and he looks around and, oh, I'm in such a beautiful surrounding. <laughs> so it's like that bitterness of soul, that, that bitterness of, of the imagination was hateful and bitter. But then when the imagination was transformed and went in a different direction because it was, it was thinking in a sacrificial way, um, then it changed everything for him. He was happier, (laughs) he was loving, and he appreciated the glory and beauty of his surroundings. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, yeah, it's just a few years ago, I remember, you know, writing a a couple of little things about imagination and and how that that makes us, you know, more, well, uh, you know, similar to what you're saying, more empathetic. But then it occurred to me not not too long, not too much later, or I guess I was writing about the importance of telling stories well. And then I realized stories, the way we make people fearful and angry and hateful, stories are pretty good for that, too. Yes. And convincing people that people who are different from you are my enemies or or, or out to get you or, you know, you you don't, there's not enough to go around or, or whatever. There are lots of ways that stories can can really be misused. Absolutely. I mean, narratives have a lot of power. I mean, I'm just thinking about right now, you know, how many conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. you know, are operating on for many different reasons, uh, yeah. uh, political things to do with pandemic, you know, all of these things. Um, and it's like the story has to have acts ha- has to resonate with a, with a truth. I mean, this is why it really kind of I don't love the phrase. I'm speaking my truth. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really like that so much. I, I'm not. I'm not saying. I think people's voices are important. Everyone's voice is important, and they need to speak their experience. Mm-hmm. And when you say speaking my truth, the you know if if, if the yeah the, the truth has to has to be connected to something outside of you. Yeah, of course. Right. right. Um, it's something that, that was manufactured in my head. It's something besides truth. And it can be very dangerous and destructive, but yeah, story, storytelling is, is so deeply connected to who we are as humans. And I think it is what moves us more than mm-hmm. anything. And so mm-hmm. that can be used for good or evil, just, you know, like the imagination can be. So, yeah. Um, so I like the way you talk about our ability to imagine which is developed in the ways that we engage with the arts, you know, that enables us to read the world, read other people. Mm-hmm. And which by the way, can be a cynical, there's a cynical way to talk about reading other people. Yes. Um, yes. But, but you say you're, you read people and you read the world, not just for knowledge, but for wisdom that bears the fruit of love. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk a little more about, about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I keep I keep kind of saying the same thing, but I think it 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 has to do with uh our posture and like if I'm if I'm wanting to learn more about someone else, um it is looking for, you know, acknowledging the image of God in there 
in them. And it, again, it's, it's that posture that's kind of sacrificial of, um, I don't know, it's, it's so easy to enter in a conversation and the whole time you're in the conversation, you spend, I mean, I've been guilty of this. You spend a lot of your time thinking about what you're going to say next, sure. Sure. <laughs> as opposed to actually listening. Yeah. Um, and so I think the arts in particular, you know, like a novel or a film, um, it, 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 of course it's conversational. It, there is an interactiveness to it, but there's a sense where you kind of have to sit back and, um, take in someone else's mm-hmm. story. Yeah. And I think that does teach a kind of patience and a kind of attentiveness that does go hand in hand with the sort of wisdom. Um, but, but I think it only becomes connected to wisdom when it is really, again, if, if it's founded on the idea of the Imago Dei, mm. um, it, it's not just, oh, how interesting. I'm looking, learning about all these different people. And that's, that's wonderful. But it's also what is, what is, what, what is there? There's a connectedness between myself and these other people, because um, as I, I talk about in the book about Pascal, a lot about Pascal's ideas mm. of, human condition and the wretchedness and the glorious, the greatness and the wretchedness of the human condition. Uh And there's, there's something about seeing a film or reading a novel where you feel like that is very accurately portrayed and you you're drawn in, you have empathy for these characters because you understand the struggle, you understand their desire, their, their thirst for righteousness but how easy it is to, to not do the things they want to do, but to do things that they hate, yeah. you know, and to, to see that, you know, so we need to, and I also think we need to go towards art. That's going to give us that very complex picture of what it means to be human, as opposed to this kind of formulaic flattened out picture mm-hmm. um, that again, is a, is an unhelpful and untrue narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the to well, sorry. Um, I, I, something that you said made me think again about this idea um, that you touched on earlier that we can either imagine what's going to happen to the other person, or we can imagine what's going to happen to me if I mm-hmm. you know, self protection is. What's going to happen? Uh, you know, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to worry about that. And empathy is worried about what's going to happen to the other person. Um, it's it's relatively easy to tell stories that stoke people's fear of what's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. And it's a little harder. It takes a little more something, a little more skill, a little more. Maybe you can help fill in the blank to tell stories that fire people's imaginations to think about what it's like to be somebody else and to be empathetic. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, I think our natural, it's almost like our default tendency is to think about ourselves first. Sure. I mean, the scripture tells us that all the, all, all, all the time. Um, and again, so I, th- I think this is why spending time reading, you know, I, I taught, I have a, a chapter in there where I talk about one of my favorite novels is what is the what by Dave Eggers, which is about mm-hmm. a, a young man who is a Sudanese refugee, Valentino Achakdang. And to, to read a 500 page biographical novel about this man's experience, you are, 
<laughs> you are surrendering. You, you are giving up a lot of your time and your emotional and mental energy just to listen. Uh-huh. You know, and it, and of course, there there's a balance. You know, with everything, there's a tension and a balance. Of course, part of what makes it meaningful is that you there are parts where you can actually relate to this man. You do mm-hmm. see self connections, and I don't think that's wrong. But it's it, this is also the difference between sympathy and empathy because I'm thinking about if if I was watching a news story, just a really brief news story or an article about the Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how I'm like, oh, that's so sad, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and then it just kind of moves on to something else. Whereas reading his story, 500 pages, um, and really seeing his thought process, his emotions, and really recognizing our commonality. Mm-hmm. I mean, empathy is more, um, is, is more you're on the same level. You're not looking down and feeling sorry for, you're actually feeling what someone else is feeling. Um, so yeah, I, that's something. Now I can't remember what your original question was. Yeah, I was asking about um, the low-hanging fruit in story. You know, if, if I want to use a story to, man, to manipulate people, yeah, um, I can... Uh, one easy way to do that is to tell a story that makes them afraid for themselves. Um, that, but I think our calling as storytellers is to help people align with reality. Um, exactly. Exactly. And exactly. You know, not not to manipulate people to uh, according to what I think is going to be good for me or even what I think is going to be good for them necessarily. Um except that I think aligning with reality is good for all of us. Even, even Mm -hmm. if I'm afraid or if I'm I'm afraid of the pain of aligning with reality, I still ultimately want to be aligned with reality and live in the world that actually exists rather than than a world of falsehood. Um, Absolutely. And that's where you can, I mean, trying to capture someone's imagination and, and, and stoke up both fear and empathy can be used in a propagandistic way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just all of a sudden, when you're talking about that, I thought, thought about, you know, one of the great films of history, uh, Battleship Potemkin, um, mm-hmm. the uh, Eisenstein film. One. Okay. Oh yeah. It's, it's a, it's a silent film and he's uh-huh. one of the, he's a Russian filmmaker, you know, one of the, innovators with like the, the, um, the montage technique in film, okay. he pretty much developed it, but there's this scene. And, and of course it is, um, it's communist propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but there's this scene called the Odessa steps where you have all of these very poor people, children, women, children, you know, peasants, disabled people on this big staircase and these Russian Cossacks, come and just brutally you can go look up just the scene on youtube just put in the odessa steps and it is it's so well made um Mm. and again it's like it's a film made i mean probably 1920 it's silent but i show it in class and it's it's amazing how much it captures your imagination it captures your emotions and it's impossible to not feel empathy for those characters that are you know to see there's a really famous scene. Maybe you're familiar with this part where there's a woman with a baby carriage and the baby carriage 
gets knocked away from her and the baby goes down the steps. Nice. And it's that scene is copied in that Kevin Costner film, The Untouchables. Okay. Um, because so it's a very famous film where lots of things are copied, but th- this entire scene, which is being portrayed as history, because uh-huh. there are true things in the film, it, yeah. it, it um, it's about a mutiny on a on a boat, mm-hmm. but this Odessa step scene is completely made up. Mm-hmm. But y- you you really feel it. But is it connected to reality? It's connected to the reality of. Um, you know, how a cruel totalitarian government can harm its citizens. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the, the way it was so masterfully done, it was done for the sake of um, advancing a certain set of political ideas. So yeah. that, again, that, that gets into the danger. <laughs> yeah. Of, sure. Is this in touch with reality? Why are we being told in a way you almost, I, I, I have this feeling because I, I think it's really, I always tell students when we look at the artist, we, we, when we read something or watch something, um, we also need to remember about the artist being made in the image of God mm. yeah. and, um, and really trying to understand what is this person trying to tell us? This is not just a transaction. This is not just to entertain you. This is about actually having a conversation with you. But there's a sense there too where you kind of have to trust. You're giving up something of yourself. You have to trust that creator. And yeah. this is this will be a controversial statement, but someone like Quentin Tarantino, which yeah. every so many people love, and I've I mean I've seen multiple films of his, and he's an incredibly talented filmmaker. But I don't trust him. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm not saying I would dismiss him as a whole per, you know, any of that, but I, I don't trust, like when I saw Pulp Fiction, I felt very manipulated. Mm-hmm. I felt like all the right buttons were being pushed to cause a shock reaction. Yeah. And I don't know if I believe the big philosophical point he was making it, you know, right. someone can be incredibly talented, but what are they actually asking you to participate in and for what end, for what reason. So, yeah. But how do you, uh, how do you know that without entering into the conversation? Right. I mean, that's a good, yes. Do we just say, uh, I've heard about Quentin Tarantino. I'm not going to watch his movies. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm, I'm open to that possibility. Yeah. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, because Tarantino and I've watched multiple movies of his, mm-hmm. although I really loved um, what's it once upon a time in Hollywood or what was the most recent yeah, one? That, the one that, that was, I, I loved that until, until the end. And then at the end I said, this is the last time I'm going to go to one of these movies by this person. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Uh, you know, I, I've decided I've, I've given this artist a chance and I'm not going to continue to do this. Yeah. That I think, I mean, that's that's the question, because I, I'm really strongly against, you know, having the list of these are the bad pieces of art you shouldn't engage sure. with. And these are the good yeah. ones. Of course, right. we're way past that. It is personal discernment. I mean, I do read reviews a lot, like someone like Lars Van Trier as a filmmaker 
I, I know what he's up to. And, <laughs> and, you know, his films are getting more and more nihilistic and violent. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, one of my friends who's a real film buff says you just feel like he hates the viewer, you know, mm-hmm. like he's just yeah. trying to torture you. And you get to a point and there's certain novelists like that, like someone like um, Brett Easton Ellis, who I wrote about partially in my dissertation. But, you know, then I look at him, try to read American Psycho and think, he's spending so much time on this really dehumanizing violence. He's making a great point, but how much do I want to go there? And again, I'm not questioning and saying I dismiss these as human beings or as important artists, but do I want to enter in that relationship? Is that, you know, um, yeah. And and it it is. And again, it's, it's like, does something move us towards love or hate? (laughs) Um, And these kind of brutal depictions, or we feel like we're being manipulated. Um, so yeah, no, no, this, it's a very interesting uh, question, but I do think like with Tarantino, yeah, I gave, I've seen multiple movies of his and I, then I, I still kind of felt that way for, for, for most of those. Although the last one I, I think is a more mature film mm. by him, yeah, but well, yeah. well, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not especially interested in making a list of, of proscribed, you know, artists, but there are some artists that I've just said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And yeah. so, um, which is not, I'm not giving anybody advice on what, <laughs> what they should or shouldn't. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, but I, but I've done subjecting myself to, to some of that business. Um, okay. There's a, an idea that I, that I love that you talk about in your introduction and you're borrowing from, um, Oh, you're going to have to help me. The hermeneutics of hospitality, you, you borrowed that term from um, who? Is it Scott Hewlin? That's it. Scott Hewlin. Thank Hewlin? you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hermeneutics of hospitality. I always have a hard time with the word her- hermeneutics. I can never remember what it means. <laughs> but but when you talk about, um, I'm just going to read a, a, a little couple of sentences from your book. As readers of culture, we are are also sojourners, strangers entering a unique and foreign country. Each time we open a book, watch a film, or listen to a new song, we have been invited in and we need to be attentive, gracious guests. In this mm-hmm. sense, the act of attentive reading is an act of love itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think and talk about the importance of a writer being a good, you know, being hospitable. But I, mm-hmm. I don't guess I'd give any thought to, to the idea of us being good guests in the works of art that we inhabit. So can you tell me more about that? Because I I, I think there's a lot to think about there. Yeah. Um, Well, I think it's um, approaching the work of art with the posture of like, of, of charity, of being charitable and Mm -hmm. not, you know, not, not just going in with cynicism, but again, you know, we keep hitting nothing is, (laughs) nothing is simple because, (laughs) you know, you have to be careful for whom and when you're going to make yourself vulnerable. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Because there are some works of art that if you completely, you know, if you really surrender so much of yourself, that can be kind of dangerous, but let's say a work of art. Well, I'll give an example. Um, I've already talked about it, but the narrative um, structure of of a one novel, the novel, what is the, what about this, Mm -hmm. the Sudanese man's experience um, I feel like this very question is a big point of the novel. Okay. It's, it's a novel about the importance of listening to stories. Mm-hmm. And um, so 
um, this, you know, this is a young man who's walked hundreds of miles, an unattended minor walking across with a group of other boys across um, the continent of Africa when after the civil war in Sudan. And and you get his harrowing story in these flashbacks. But the, the novel starts in present day Atlanta because uh-huh. he has been brought over to the United States. You know, a lot of the, quote, lost boys were brought over and, you know, mm-hmm. they went to different cities. He's in Atlanta. And the novel opens with someone knocking at his door. And again, this is the question of who is your neighbor? This woman knocks on his door and says, um, my car's broken down and I, can I come in and use your phone? And he's thinking, oh, I need to help her. And he's not kind of streetwise. Mm-hmm. He's being a good neighbor. She's yeah. in need. And he opens the door and lets her in. And immediately a man comes from behind and, um, you know, comes in with a gun and they rob him. They tie huh. him up and rob him. Okay. So this idea of someone knocking at your door and, and the, you know, it's the whole, the whole novel at the beginning is, you know, I'm going to tell you my story. I'm going to let you in. Do I trust you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And the way it's, the way it's structured, because as he's sitting there, um, tied up his mouth. I mean, they, they've, you know, they've got something over his mouth. He's tied up. He keeps telling these stories in his head of his life that, saying, mm-hmm. if you could hear my story, you wouldn't treat me like this. If you oh, could hear yeah. my story, huh. you know, it's really powerful. And the other really powerful part is he has um, evangelical Christian neighbors living below him and he's a Catholic, he's a believer. And he has these evangelical Christian neighbors and he's pounding on the floor. And in his mind, he's yelling, can't you hear me, Christian neighbors? You mm. don't have ears for someone like me. Mm. Why, why aren't you listening for me? You know, can't you come up and help me? And so it's it's almost like the beginning of the book. It's an invitation to come in and listen to his story. But it's also, you know, are you can, can I trust you with your story? Are you going to come in? and use my story against me? Are you going to come in and trample on my story, steal parts of it, appropriate parts of it? It, It's very interesting. So the whole novel is about the act of storytelling and the importance of, at the end of it, he says, he talks directly to the reader and basically says, to to not tell and listen to stories would be something less than human, Mm. that we need to, you know, share stories, to listen to one another. So, um, yeah, so that's really, that novel really made me think about, um, I'm just thinking of the vulnerability of an artist or this man who, you know, he had Dave Eggers wrote this with him, but the vulnerability of really honestly telling your story and that how are we going to engage with it? Um, and I've, I've learned a lot about this from being at Labrie Fellowship and Ellis Potter talks about how it's it's we're we're kind of taught culturally to think of art as an act of of, of a kind of a consumer product to say I like uh-huh. it or I don't like it. Yeah. Whereas we sh- that's that's a really you know that's that's commo- that's that's commodifying it. That is that's not relational. Um, that we should really think about it as this conversation. It is reflexive. So that's the part where we have the hospitality of the reader having a kind of charitable yeah. you know, way of coming in. So, yeah, because, because in, in hospitality, the guest has responsibilities as well as the, the host. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, in in uh, what is it? The 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 Odyssey, right? When, yes. when people are bad guests, that's that's the very serious charge. Yeah, the the they break the laws of Zania, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, you know, when they yeah they they come in the guests and um and with there with Penelope the suitors yeah right yeah yeah, (laughs) you know eating around of house and home mistreating her all these things um so it's like we do have a responsibility we've been given an invitation um and what are we going to do with that invitation and part of that as I've already said is thinking about the artist himself or herself is made in God's image Mm. And, and being respectful in that sense of, you know, what are they, but again, there is the sense of discernment because not everyone that's creating a piece of art has, (laughs) is going to give you something that is, is going to be, I don't want to even use the word edifying because (laughs) I, I, you know, I'm not against, you know, I'm not going to say don't read Ernest Hemingway's too nihilistic or, you know what I mean? Because there's a point where that's personal discernment. Like, how far do you want to go down that road? Yeah. Um, well, but, okay. I, I, I've I've got a couple of questions. I, I want I want to ask one thing before I forget. Then I want to come back to that idea of of reading and and coming into the the host, the the home the hostel of of the uh, of the of the writer um, or the the artist. But I do want to ask. What are some ways that we might, as as readers or as viewers or listeners, um, violate the rules of hospitality mm-hmm. as guests? Like, how if if this is the the uh, the artist has created a space, invited me in, how can I get that wrong as a as a visitor, a guest? Well, I'm just. I think, first of all, making a really immediate surface judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I tell my students <laughs> when I, I I play songs like I I play the um, the national song "Fake Empire" when we at the beginning of semester when we talk about different um, understandings of reality because so we're going to read Descartes and we're going to read you know Francis Bacon and all these people. And, uh, you know, how do we know what's reality? How do we discern here? And I tell them, when I ask them to talk about the song, and and again, I've been guilty of this. I'm not just putting it on my students, but mm-hmm. some students will just say, it's just weird, <laughs> you know, because they're, they're not, it's, it's like, it sounds unfamiliar and strange if they're not used to listening, if they're only used, used to listening like pop music, Mm-hmm. that's on the radio, a song that's like that, it's just initially you think, oh, I know what that's about, you know, and mm-hmm. or that's just weird. So mm-hmm. I tell them, you can't use the word weird. You, you have to, <laughs> you have to go in and tell me what, what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, 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 so there's something, it's just, just like it is with another human being that we have a tendency to want to label and dismiss rather yeah. than really looking more deeply at the image bearer that they are the same with work of art. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing. I mean, I've struggled, but I mean, I, I do that with some works of art myself. I mean, I can't say that I've been incredibly charitable 
Yeah. I should just watch God's Not Dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and, and I, I struggle with being charitable with something, but well, because it's so formulaic, it, it's just so. Well, I think it's it's hard when something lacks a lot of complexity and nuance, and mm. you feel as if you feel as if it almost seems like a work of propaganda. It mm. almost seems like you're being so in, in such a simplistic manner told this is, you know, because I don't feel like it's very charitable in its reading of non Christians, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. especially academics. You know, yeah. so that's that's the hard hard thing. But I'm talking about art that I I would say is complex and nuance. Um, so I think one wrong way would be just labeling it and dismissing it without even engaging it. Yeah. Um, I also think one part would be, um, using, I mean, this is interesting. I'm just thinking, okay, if if we're going to look at, let's think about MLK speeches, which I would consider works of art. Mm -hmm. How many times have snippets, especially of the I Have a Dream speech, been used, taken out of context and kind of weaponized and used against his whole body of work? Like, that's a way that you can abuse, you can be non-charitable, you can really be. So sometimes art can be used as a weapon that's even going against. Yeah. (laughs) What it's got, there for? So it's you're, appropriated. You've, you've uh, stolen something out of your your uh, host's house. Mm-hmm. The host has invited you exactly. in, and you, and you took the silverware. That's and a stabbed great, them with it. <laughs> that's a great. That's a great way. So those are a couple of ways that yeah. I think we can. No, I I think I'm I'm really loving the idea of thinking myself as a as a guest in a space that the that the artist has created um, because it, it starts us out in a relation in, in a, in a kind of relationship, but it, but it also doesn't preclude the possibility of me having a critical view of what's going on in this house. Yeah. Right? You know, it, if, if you, if I, you know, if I came over thinking I was an honored guest and you gave me, you know, potted meat on some, you know, miracle bread or whatever, wonder bread, I might have my feelings hurt a little bit. Like you, you didn't go yeah, to the yeah. trouble to, to do anything better for me. And I might not come back or if you assault me, while I'm in your house, but also I have responsibilities as a guest in your house. I think it's a really helpful image. Yeah, it is. Um, and I mean, again, I want to give credit. Like I've learned that from Labrie. I also remember Jeff Morton. He's a, he's an art professor at Covenant college hearing a chapel talk of his, where he talks about, visual art and he Mm -hmm. talked about like the act of surrendering in front of it Mm -hmm. it was like Mm -hmm. you had to give up your you had to put down your defenses yeah you had to kind of enter and again that's an act of trust right um so that was he 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 spoke of that so well i also know that when i um i used to be very involved with I, i taught at calvin what's now university um, for a little while. And I also helped organize, there, there was a, a festival of faith and music that mm-hmm. they had every other year for a while there. And, um, and Ken Hefner, who was the student activities director at, at Calvin, um, he, this was a really amazing thing that he did. And it wasn't just for the festival. It was whenever they had, con- and they had amazing lineup of concerts at mm-hmm. Calvin, just phenomenal, but he would ask his artists 
to have a conversation after their performance or before their performance. Uh-huh. Um, and we're, some of them were big name artists, you know, sitting there like in a classroom <laughs> talking uh-huh. with students. But his last question was always this. How can we be good listeners hmm. to your music? What? And they were always so surprised because they 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 love that question. They felt so welcome just by the asking of the question because they're very and they all had things to say because they were very aware that a concert is not just a one way experience where mm-hmm. we're feeding you. There's a back and forth. It yeah. is. You can really see with a concert. It's a conversation. It's there's something going on. And Kim would always ask, you know, how can we, how can we be a good audience? Like, how can we honor you? How can we listen to you? And so just even thinking that way was something that was new to, to most of the students sitting there. And I mean, I learned a lot from it. So yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. Well, um, the, the, I've heard the, the idea of, you know, surrendering to the art you know receiving mm-hmm. the art you know by surrendering to it and even in you know an experiment in criticism uh you know c.s lewis has some things to say along those lines mm-hmm. um and i was never quite comfortable with the language mm-hmm. of surrender but the language yeah. of hospitality says you know I, don't ask me to surrender to somebody i think is hostile like to, so, so it, it's hard to ask people to surrender to people that they think already think disagree with them. But I could imagine being invited into the house of somebody I disagree with and sitting down and having a conversation. And, that's really, yeah. That, and I, then I'm also like, free to disagree in that. Yeah. When I surrender, I'm not quite, I don't feel quite free to disagree. But mm-hmm. when I'm, when I'm been invited into somebody's house, we can have a conversation in which we don't have to agree, but we can, honor one another and welcome one another as image bearers. So I'm going to be yes. borrowing that. I'm going to be borrowing that image of, of the get of the artist as host, which I've talked about before, but I haven't gone the next step and talked about the, the receiver as guest. So I love it. Yeah. It's, it is a really helpful way of, of thinking. And I mean, I'm just thinking of experiences. I think another way, again, like you asked, how can we be not good guests is that label and dismiss. And I'm thinking about, I see a lot of people do this with very contemporary art, like visual art. Mm-hmm. It's just really easy to look and say, I could have done, my child could have done that or what that's meaningful, you know? And I remember again, being when I was spending time at Labrie and I had a friend um, who, uh, Lucy Metcalf, who was the artist in residence at Labrie. And she mm-hmm. gave a lecture on Damien Hurst. And Damien Hurst is, you know, a lot of people really dislike him because they don't trust him as an artist. They think mm-hmm. he's more of a businessman. and. Mm-hmm. Um, if people aren't familiar with Damien Hirsch, just Google him and you'll come up with some weirdly weird stuff. <laughs> um, he has like parts of cows and formaldehyde and all kinds of mm. weird stuff. Okay. And, but, but her lecture really, you know, look, learn. Yeah. The more I learned about what he's doing, it, it opened up, you know, sometimes we need guides, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it really helped me to see him in a very different light. And then I went to his retrospective at the Tate Modern and was really moved by it. Mm. Um, but it was, but it, my, you know, it's, it, it, he's one of these artists that there's a natural tendency to just kind of, ah. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of, you know, just say, I, I don't believe it. that's, that's yeah. silly. Or yeah. Yeah. 
I don't, be- I don't believe what he's doing or mm-hmm. without really looking more closely. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, good. All right. So let me ask you the, the traditional ending question for the habit podcast. And that is who are the writers who make you want to write Mary? Uh, actually, interestingly, the number one, I mean, anytime I read a good novel or a good short story or a good set of essay or good essay, or, I mean, I'm even thinking of writers for like film and television, you know, anytime I really, um, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for, uh, the way stories tell us the truth about the human longing, human longing for God. Mm-hmm. And so when I see that, it, it I want to write about it. It's not so much about me writing um, my own creative, like a novel, but I want to write, I want to, I want to do something with that. I want to mm-hmm. make more connections and that's exciting for me. But um, I think the, so there are many that I could say there, but I think the one that I'll really talk about is Douglas Copeland. I mean, I did my dissertation on him, so I've written a lot uh-huh. on him. So, <laughs> um, but Douglas Copeland, who, if people aren't familiar with, he's, um, he wrote the novel Generation X that coined the term for popular usage. Uh-huh. And what's amazing about, I think, I just remember a few years ago reading, I mean, he writes a lot of fiction. He's written like 15 novels and books of short stories. But he he has also written a lot of essays that are just drawing off of cultural analysis and his life experience. And he's he's seamlessly weaving like his life in with analysis of the culture and reading him really made me want to write creative nonfiction, which is a new Mm -hmm. thing for me Mm -hmm. um, because I'm used to more academic writing or writing like cultural analysis um, but now I've started branching out because it, it made me realize that just, just everyday life, just our observations within our everyday life and our experiences are things worth writing about, you know, yeah. and I just love the way he, he writes. I mean, his essays are just fantastic. Um, so I'm, I'm not a fiction writer. I, I can't, I don't know if I'll ever do that, mm-hmm. but I'm very interested in creative nonfiction and I think Copeland is the one who, which is funny because the creative nonfiction I've written looks nothing like something he would write because it's very much, you know, my Southern quasi Faulkner-esque <laughs> family, you know, this, yeah. this kind of wacky background, you know, and, and he's this Canadian, right? It's just yeah. completely different. But just that idea of kind of mining your own life and looking mm-hmm looking at the experiences and, and and the reason that you are the way you are in the present moment, looking back at that. So, yeah. um, so yeah, is someone who's really, all right. That's, that's a, that's great. I'm, I, I love hearing that. I, I love hearing when people say, in essence, when I see someone else doing what they're made to do, it makes me want to do what I'm made to do. Even if it's something. Yeah. Different. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being here. Um, and thank you for your book and, and the ways that it invites us into to being more empathetic people. I, I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, it's been a real joy to be here. And um, thank you to everyone who's listening. And uh, yeah. <laughs> <you soon. laughs> the Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room 
where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. Thank you.